Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 123 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 24th. We normally do the show on a Wednesday, but there has been some breaking news going on, and we had to delay the show one day, so we apologize for that. All the emails I got, yes, we are still putting up the podcast just one day later. But if you have any questions or comments for us, you can always drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com. we got a lot of questions and comments this week. We're going to try to get to all of them, but there's a lot to get to. Uh, we're giving Coach Harvey Hyde the week off, and we're going to join. We are joined by Dan Weber, uscfootball.com beat writer in our first segment. Dan, how you doing, sir? Hey, Ryan. Good to, uh, good to catch up with you here. Yeah, always. It's always fun. Well, the, the big news, uh, we had to wait a day. We put up this story uh, on Todd McNair. The uh, missteps by the NCAA, uh, you and Brian Fisher, it's a, it's a long story. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of information in there and a lot of uh, curious. I think the USC fans will be pretty curious as what went down during this whole four-year investigation by the NCAA. I mean, it does feel like there was, the, the Todd McNair might have got a raw deal on some of these issues. And I just wanted to kind of get your initial thoughts on, on the story overall and, and what you thought when you started researching this. Well, I think what we thought was... Uh... I still remember as soon as the penalties broke, the uh, somebody ESPN tracked down Kirk Herbstreit, and he was at the Cincinnati Zoo with his kids, and he was on his cell phone, and he said, wow, I can't believe that. Wow. You know, he was, like, stunned by the penalties. And he said, well, there must be something there we don't know, as if there's this, you know, underground, you know, are there tapes, are there, you know, whatever, secret something or other that makes this worthy of the way the NCAA came down on USC. Well, as it turns out, in trying to research this and trying to see, you know, did they connect Todd McNair in any way to unethical conduct or any knowledge of of what was going on or whatever, and the more we were able to get access to, uh, uh, to case summary documents in the file and see what the questions what questions were asked and all that. I think what we were stunned by was how little uh, the NCA ended up having to resort to to try and what contortions they had to go through to try to connect one person at USC with knowledge of anything going on with regard to Reggie Bush. And in, and, and unfortunately for Todd, he was the position coach he made the most phone calls to uh, Reggie, and he kept, you know, closest to Reggie. And so, uh, you know, the NCA was able to turn up, you know, a few phone calls that they really seemed to have twisted uh, the meaning of, or just made conclusions, or believed a multiple felon who had a reason not to tell the truth. Uh, and uh, I think we were ended at the, at the end. We were stunned by how little. Uh, uh, evidence, how, how tenuous the evidence is, how basically uh, a reasonable person looking at the evidence that the NCAA cites would 
pretty much come down on the side of Todd McNair, that his explanation is uh, is the correct one, and he hardly has anything to explain. And so much of, the, of, of what the NCAA did in this case was they just made mistakes. They were sloppy. They questioned people, and they got the year wrong, and they got who made this particular phone call wrong, and they go through the whole questioning, and they never get it right. So, some, like on the main, the one single main phone call that they used to say, we believe that on this two-minute and 32-second phone call to Todd McNair by Lloyd Lake, he told him the whole story, and Todd McNair had the obligation immediately to go to the USC compliance office and tell him the whole story. Well, as, as Todd's law, uh, lawyer said, I think, uh, uh, you know, the whole case rests on a phone call that Todd doesn't even remember that was uh, less time than it he would take for him to order a pizza. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that summarizes it. And in the questioning of that phone call, when they questioned Lloyd Lake, the man who made it, they mistakenly said that Todd made the phone call to Lloyd Lake. They asked Lloyd Lake about this phone call that Todd McNair made to you. And Lloyd Lake gives them a detailed answer as to what Todd McNair said to him and why he called him on a fictional phone call, which all the phone records show was made by Lloyd Lake to Todd McNair. So now we have the one person involved in the key phone call, the key piece of evidence in the entire case. Uh, he makes up an answer. Then when they talk to Todd McNair about it, they say that it happened in January 8th of 2005, which was after the Oklahoma Orange Bowl game, and asked Todd what he was doing that week. And Todd says correctly, well, I think I was out recruiting. I didn't even come home with the team. You know, no, now, yeah. So it turns out he was, you know, in Georgia recruiting Kyle Moore. He was in New Jersey recruiting Brian Cushing. And he goes on with his long, extended, and correct answer. Turns out the NCA never corrects it during the questioning, never says, oh, uh, Mr. McNair, we meant January 8th, 2006. There's the phone call. So Todd never even gets a chance through this whole process, like four years wasn't a long enough time. Uh, four years, he never, the NCA never goes back to him and says, you know, we gave you the wrong date by a year, and we needed you to talk about this January 8th, 2006 phone call that we're saying you were told about the entire scheme, uh, and uh, we're going to charge you with unethical conduct and, uh, and uh, give you a year, you know, penalty show cause that you can't recruit, and basically you can't be a football coach. And they said, we thought about it, but then we never decided to go back and, and check with him on it because, you know what, he said he didn't know this guy and uh, had never talked to him, so we just didn't bother to go back and clear that up. And then, ultimately, they basically say, we believe that multiple felon who had expressed anger and a, a resentment against Todd because he accused Todd of steering Reggie Bush away from these two guys who never represented anybody, and, uh, and that they said, the NCAA said, we believed him uh, because he had tapes of uh, corroborating some of his information, but we don't believe Todd McNair at all, even though Todd had, you know, witnesses, 
He had explanations uh, for essentially everything in there that make perfect sense. And, and, and so I guess what we, we did was we went in and looked as closely as we could. Basically, it's just Todd, because Todd was the only way the NCA could connect this to, uh, to USC. There's a second part of the case where they say, in a novel theory, they say that uh, marketing agent Mike, Michael Ornstein, who was um, uh, who Reggie Bush ended up signing with and who he interned with, the NCA has this theory that USC, I think, is really fighting, where they say that because one summer he only hired a couple of interns, uh, and they were both, or all three maybe, uh, were from USC. He didn't hire interns from anywhere else, even though he had over the years hired interns from UCLA and, you know, all over the place. This one summer, because all his interns were from USC, they determined that he was a uh, representative of USC's athletic interests. Now, that was an unprecedented ruling. They had never ruled that way before in history. And they didn't bother to tell USC that they had determined that Ornstein was a representative of USC's athletic interest. So that's the second way that they say they can, they want, they're trying to connect uh, 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 whatever illegal benefits and whatever, you know, was happening uh, outside of USC to USC. But essentially, the one way they've gotten, they've gone after USC is through Todd McNair, and the evidence really doesn't seem to hold up uh, because the more we find out is the tapes that they've got have nothing to do with, uh, uh, with Todd McNair. And, as the NCA said, the tapes are a problem because they were illegally uh, obtained in California. They're not allowed to be, uh, uh, you're not allowed, one party's not allowed to tape uh, without both parties' consent. So whatever tapes they, uh, that Lloyd Lake said he had were illegal. And then the NCA says, and they weren't presented to the committee. However, the committee says we make our decision based on the credibility of Lloyd Lake because he had tapes. It's very convoluted. They don't even say that their own staff listened to the tapes or gave them a report about the tapes. They just say that. And uh, it looks like a guy's career you know, could be up in smoke based on uh, not enough evidence to, you know, convict anybody of anything, much less, you know, something this serious. So, you know, we just basically said, we're going to take a look at the evidence, see what we can see, see what the NCA was really saying in that 67-page report, and uh, where did this all come from? Mm-hmm. And it sort of came from, you know, out of the, <laughs> out of the air. Out I mean, of the blue, just, yeah. It's just not there. I mean, what are, one of know. the interesting things, Dan, to me was there was a uh, a sequence of I think three phone calls from McNair's phone to uh, Lloyd Lake's phone, and uh, there were right, one, in fourteen one... months. Now they they were saying that they had met at a Marshall Falk birthday party for two thousand. Even the NCA committee wouldn't buy that. After all, the witnesses basically said. It didn't happen, and Todd wasn't in San Diego on the one day he was supposed to have met Lake. And uh, but they say that Lake gave him his business card, and Lake had his phone number, and da da da. Well, in that whole time period, 14 months, uh, as it turns out, Lake 
phone number shows up three times on Todd's, uh, you know, thousands of phone calls that he made while he, you know, uh, at USC. And there are three one-minute calls on October 29th when Todd was responsible for a recruit. It was the night after the Washington State game. Reggie was involved with the recruit. Uh, <clears throat> Reggie went out with his family to eat. The recruit's sitting in his hotel. Todd keeps is calling the recruit. Then he's calling Reggie. Reggie's phone, he's having problems with his cell phone. So it turns out Reggie gives him the number. And uh, uh, just, you know, by coincidence, unfortunately, on that night, the Bush family is out with both Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels uh, at a Chinese restaurant. So Reggie says, call this number, this other 619 number. So Todd calls that number three times, three one-minute calls, probably, you know, leaving voice messages saying, you know, call me back. I want to find out if you picked up our, our recruit at the hotel. Uh, Lloyd Lake doesn't remember those calls. However, the number turns out to be Lloyd Lake's cell phone because he was with uh, the Bush party. So the NCAA sees Lloyd Lake's cell phone number on Todd's calling records, and that convinces them, along with a photo, because after they locate Reggie, after he locates, uh, picks up the recruit, there are no more phone calls to, uh, that have Lloyd Lake's number on them. But because Todd was in the same uh, area as uh, where the Bushes were eating, they both end up at, at a club where Todd's there with a friend of his, a, a fairly well, uh, uh, easily recognized actor uh, friend of his, and a, phone, uh, a cell phone photo is taken of these two who are sitting at, you know, at the bar, it looks like, and there are two guys behind them. Well, it turns out the two guys behind them are Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels. As USC has pointed out by showing photos of uh, Vice President Biden with the Salahi interlopers at that uh, uh, you know, big White House uh, fancy uh, dinner party, uh, you can take a picture with people and have no idea who they are which is what USC said, so, you know, these guys are, you know, behind them. They're not with them. Uh, they're just in the picture. But the NCA said those three phone calls, those three one-minute phone calls, the only calls from Todd's phone over that entire period of time that had Lake's number on it and the, uh, the photo of these two guys in the background proves to the NCA that Todd knew Lake and was dealing with Lake. Uh, it's, it's, just so unbelievably tenuous. Well, uh, those three uh, phone but, calls, I mean, if anyone out there is a recruiting fan, I mean, Bush is hosting the number one recruit in the country, and right. Todd McNair is concerned, where are you, Ray? Why are you not with the recruit? I mean, they're, yeah, they want to know what's going on. sitting in his hotel room until 11.30 at night, which the recruit, and we're not identifying him just because he was in high school at the time and whatever, and if people want to figure out who it is, that's fine. But the recruit, when he's deposed, says, yeah, that's exactly right. He absolutely corroborates uh, uh, Todd's uh, explanation and, and how it all happened. And uh, it, unfortunately, the NCA doesn't seem like they want to believe that. Now, it's hard to tell the way the report is done and the way the findings are, are uh, produced. It's hard to even see which way did the NCA committee come down on that one. I mean, we're like, what did they decide? Because they, on the first allegation against Todd that he was at this birthday party and he met him, and I, there is so much evidence against the NCA's theory of the case that they do say 
well, we can't decide on that one. On this, on this uh, October 29th, uh, uh, three phone calls, they don't even seem, as far as we can tell, to even come down one way or the other until at the very end when they say, we don't believe you know, the UFC coach, we believe the multiple felon who, I guess in the last questioning session, I thought it was interesting when he was kind of making up his answer uh, to uh, why Todd had called him, which had not happened. Uh, there's a comment by, I guess, by his girlfriend talking about the call and saying uh, that's when uh, Lloyd was on his way back to jail. Uh, he was, <laughs> uh, I think, 10 days later, he was going back to prison. Things were really going, you know, things were going tough, or things were, you know, getting real tough right then, you know, that kind of thing. So it was like, and, yeah, and the NCA says, yeah, we believe the guy who made up an answer to a question that implied that, Todd McNair made the phone call when Todd McNair was called by Lake, or from Lake's phone anyway. Uh, we don't even know if Todd ever picked it. We don't know any of the details of that. But we, all we know is Lloyd Lake said, this is what I told him on this phone call, even though he'd already answered uh, that the phone call was made by, by Todd to Lake. I mean, I know it gets, you know, people probably go crazy thinking about um, uh, all the details here. But it is in the details, and the NCA didn't seem to get a lot of these details correct. And that's what we like to point out is uh, they needed to do a better job if you're going to try to, you know, really ruin a guy's career as a college coach. Um, you better have some actual evidence that uh, that's believable. And right now, what they presented does not seem very believable to us. Right. All right. Well, Dan, we got a question, too, that, uh, I mean, it kind of the the point of you know, there's a lot of uh, mistakes here. It looks like there's some some just interesting points in this whole report. But I mean, people want to know kind of what does it mean? And then, you know, we're expecting USC to announce an appeal uh, on Thursday or Friday. But there is a new standard, and we have a question from David. He wanted to get your thoughts on this on uh, the new standard of review for appeals by the COI decision. So the the NCAA as of 2008 put this new standard through it's a lot harder now to appeal case so even though there's all these mistakes you know what does it mean for the university well i mean that's a really good question i think the lawyers are you know we've talked to some you know we've actually talked to the one person who who one lawyer who in that time frame with the new standard is the only one that's gotten an appeal through and gotten the penalty reduced uh uh and he did it for alabama state uh uh, Alabama lost its appeal. Uh, Florida State lost its appeal. They're still they're really unhappy, but they lost. And uh, Memphis lost their appeal on that Derrick Rose case. But uh, but right before that, Oklahoma, for example, when they had the case of those guys, you know, getting paid by the car dealer that weren't working, and Adrian Peterson driving the new Lexus and all that kind of stuff, and they took away a bunch of games from them, the victories. And they appealed, and they got them back. And I think the committee basically said, "That's it. We're not, we're not losing these appeals like this because people are bringing in new evidence or whatever." So the new standard was that you had to have uh, everything had to be on the record and dealt with at the hearing. You couldn't come in later and appeal because you had new information or you had new evidence or whatever. So. One of the things that we're, we're seeing uh, is that um, uh, 
we were comparing USC's, and because people were really excited when they said, "Oh my gosh, the public uh, uh, infractions report is 67 pages long," and usually they're 20 to 30 pages. What does this mean? Well, some people are starting to think that what the NCA is doing is you can bring everything up at the hearing, and they'll sit there and kind of nod their heads, and they'll kind of accept anything you tell them. Like USC did point out these inconsistencies and and errors in the statements of fact. And they'll put all of that in there, and then they're still going to come down to their conclusion. But they don't want to look like they passed it over and uh, give you a reason to appeal. Now, USC brought this stuff up. It's not like this is something that came up after the hearing. Uh, from everything we've heard, that was all brought up at the hearing. The fact that the committee didn't exactly uh, make a finding on it you know, they didn't throw it out. They didn't accept it. They just said, okay, uh, we don't know where that leaves them uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, should they have said, wait a minute, you've got uh, the wrong question to Lake. You've got the wrong year to Todd McNair. And on that particular single piece of evidence, you're going to find Todd McNair connected to and knowing about this plot and guilty of unethical conduct because he didn't reveal what he was told in a phone call when you screwed up every bit of questioning and every bit of evidence that you tried to find about this phone call, we don't know. Can USC say this is significant uh, mistake at the hearing that it has to be overturned because we brought it up and they didn't, they didn't make it correct at that point in time. They didn't follow through on it. We don't know if that if that is enough. Uh, what the standard is. did the committee? I think one of the uh, uh, standards is abuse of discretion. Did the committee abuse its discretion in the way it uh, ruled on this evidence? Did they have enough evidence? And I think what's going to uh, certainly come up is is the committee allowed to cite tapes? that are not in evidence, that the committee goes out of its way to say, based on our legal counsel, and because these uh, tapes were obtained in California where they're illegal, uh, we did not have those uh, tapes presented to the committee. However, we use those tapes and the presence of those tapes to find uh, Lloyd Lake as a credible witness. What they don't say is, and what we found out is, Todd McNair is, is nowhere on those tapes. Todd McNair's phone calls, nowhere on those tapes. Nothing about Todd McNair, evidently, are, uh, do those tapes relate to. But in reading the report, it looks like they used the presence of tapes, which were not taping Todd, to say Lloyd Lake is credible. And it's like, well, he was credible about this thing he told us about somebody else, Therefore, we, we think he's credible about everything. Well, I don't know. Can, can the committee say tapes that USC wasn't allowed to hear, tapes that uh, USC wasn't exactly allowed to defend against or that Todd wasn't or that we don't know that he was, and we certainly have no evidence that he got a chance to listen to the tapes, uh, defend the credibility of what he heard on the tapes, none of that. How do you defend yourself then at a hearing if the committee is using evidence that it did not, and it goes out of its way to say it was not presented to us, and yet 
it clearly states in the committee's uh, ruling that the tapes give Lloyd Blake credibility over Todd. Unbelievable. I mean, it's really an amazing. So whether that, uh, from the experts we've talked to, they're not sure because they don't know of another case that the NCA has heard that have involved tapes like this, illegally obtained tapes that were not presented as evidence but used to determine somebody's credibility. It's it's a mess. Bizarre. It's, it's absolutely bizarre, Dan. Well, it, we're, there'll be a lot more of this story, so make sure you keep checking out uscfootball.com. Great work. Yeah, hopefully by you. tomorrow and, you know, the next day. There are other, you know, developments of, uh, you know, people trying to help us walk through what what happens now. You know, where is Todd McNair? Uh, where does USC's appeal go? And, and what avenues can they appeal on and all of that? There's, you know, there's a lot. Unfortunately, there's way too much here, you know, that, probably shouldn't all be here but yeah. it's, there's a lot of stuff all right well, um, well dan we'll keep we'll, we'll keep checking with you stay tuned for sure and uh thanks for joining us thanks okay thanks ryan all Bye. right everyone else we're back in 30 seconds we're going to talk with brian fisher and get some more information on this whole case meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Parastyle podcast tickets 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 sc tickets is your concert sports and theater ticket source we have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We are joined by Brian Fisher, uscfootball.com. The big story went up today on uscfootball.com on Thursday. Brian was all over this with Dan Weber and uh, really interesting, Brian. Uh, what were your initial thoughts uh, you know, since the story has gone up and the reaction of the, the fans to what was in the story? Well, you know, I think after finally getting through, you know, all like thousand pages I've read the past couple of weeks, um, it's just it's just interesting to note how the NCAA proceeded with this case and what you know we we had heard from USC that the evidence was circumstantial and, and certainly that came out in their response, but to you know actually get the evidence and see just how circumstantial it is and just uh, how the NCAA made their case against USC that that to me was probably the most surprising thing. And I think the thing that USC fans will take away from this is, you know, it, how could they make a case like this, uh, you know, based on one man, based on, you know, missing dates, missing, you know, possible doctored photos, stuff like that. It's just uh, you, you kind of step back and you look at it and you you just think, I just don't know. Like, how 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 could they levy all these sanctions and whatnot in a, in a case based on on really not a whole lot? And uh, you know, I think that that's why USC officials thought that they they wouldn't get hit that hard. I agree, and it's I don't think anyone here is saying that you know Bush didn't get illegal benefits. I don't think USC is saying that. I mean, we're not even saying what we know Todd McNair knew or didn't know. But the the evidence that he was convicted on. That, that we looked at and that we reviewed in all the, the those documents, it just seems really weak compared to, you know, it, it, it 
didn't seem like it was strong evidence. It seemed weak for sure. And the mm-hmm. penalties were harsher than you would even think. So it seems like those two, that was a major disconnect there. And it's important to keep in mind that reviewing everything, USC was, you know, by the NCAA's definition, guilty of failure to monitor and, and lack of institutional control. I don't think anyone is disputing that, you know, including reading through all the documents and and USC. I, I think they eventually won't dispute that. I think it's the severity of the punishment not fitting the crime that is really the, the big story out of this uh, whole case. You know, it's you know, they did not follow up in certain cases. You know, they did have a little lax regulation here and there. But for that, you know, to all be pinned on, on Todd McNair based on what he knew and then, you know, going forward, you know, the university knew because he knew, uh, that, that's just so circumstantial. It, it just, it, it's, it's interesting to, to see how the NCAA made their case. And uh, certainly, you know, a lot of people are going to come out of this saying they didn't have a case at all. I would disagree with that. I think they have some case, but not to the level that the sanctions were with the 30 scholarships and the two-year bull ban. Yeah, that it just definitely seems extreme there. And then with the the evidence being the way it is, uh, we'll see. You know, like we said, we're gonna kind of watch through this whole process. But we got some questions, uh, Brian. And you were the one that said what a couple weeks ago was it a week ago? Yeah, I think it was a week ago or two weeks ago. This isn't over. It's just beginning, and we're starting to see that now. And I did want to remind people we'll be having a lot more stories go up. Uh, from Brian and Dan on this whole incident at uscfootball.com. I don't think I should call it an incident on this whole issue. Um, and if you want to be a subscriber, you haven't been to a subscriber before. We offered this last week and we got a lot of emails. And if you like the podcast and you want to hear more about recruiting and more stuff that's going on with the team, we're going to give you a free couple months. So just drop me an email, podcast at uscfootball.com. We will extend, you know, if you do a free trial on the site, we'll extend it out till August 15th. So you can get a lot of fall camp because there's a lot going on. During that, and of course, this whole everything during the early part of the appeals process. But uh, Brian, we get some couple questions here. Steve in North Carolina wanted to know: During sanctions, can USC still be ranked by the Associated Press? And if they are number one or number two, can they play in a BCS national championship game? Well, yes, they can. They can still be ranked. I mean, we've seen teams. I believe Auburn in '93 was the, the best example of teams still being ranked. I believe they were. Th- 13 and 0. They might have been 12 and 0. I thought it was 11 and 0 because I don't know if Maybe it was 11 and 0. Yeah. It, it was, you know, they were undefeated essentially in 93 and they were they were on probation and they were, you know, I guess the the first thing to clarify is being on probation doesn't really mean anything in terms of going to a bowl or or being ranked or anything. That just means the NCAA is have, you know, has a closer eye on you. And if you are on probation and you get hit with another major uh violation, you could be eligible for severe penalties. Um, you know, being on probation doesn't mean a whole lot, essentially. And, you know, where USC would get looked at is because they're on the bowl ban and they have, a, you know, they can't go to a BCS bowl and whatnot. You know, we can get to that going to the appeals process a little later. But, you know, long answer short is they can still be ranked. Um, you know, if USC decides to appeal the bowl ban, which uh, I'm almost assured that they are, then there's a chance that USC could go undefeated this year and go to the national championship game and be voted, you know, AP national championship. You know, that, that doesn't really affect them. It, it, you know, it's, it's just, you know, they, they could go undefeated and end up number three or four in the country. Um, if some writers choose to vote them as their, the number one team, if they're undefeated, but are not going to a bowl, you know, that's the prerogative of the writers. But, 
uh, they can certainly be ranked and they can certainly win a national championship. All right. Well, thank you for that one, Steve. Uh, JC had a number of questions and I like, I love the way Brian, there's like a, we need like a psychologist to uh, read some of the emails that we get here on the podcast. <laughs> um, that, you know, people will number their questions like so that, so JC numbered four questions, but each question, each number has about five or six questions <laughs> with it. So there's like, <laughs> So, so I guess they're just main topic questions and then sub questions. Uh, you did answer his number two question about being able to be number one in the polls. That is still a possibility. Uh, his first question literally does have like six questions in there, but that kind of, it boils down to the appeals process, what the timeline is and any kind of lawsuit against the NCAA, what could happen there? Uh, you know, what do you think USC legally can do both on the appeal side and, and just legally? Uh, well, you know, I, I think any talk of a lawsuit is really premature. I, I think a lot of fans have that and that, oh, the USC is going to sue the NCAA. Uh, hold off on that thought for right now because right now they're going to go through the appeals process. That's first and foremost. You know, maybe if they're still, you know, the appeals committee upholds the original findings of the, of the scholarship reductions and bowl bans, uh, you may see uh, a, a lawsuit. I, I'm not even sure you know, what they would end up suing for, how, you know, what court it would be in, um, you know, the legal issues in that are, are kind of vague. And, um, you know, cer certainly I, I think they're, they're going to, you know, take it one step at a time and start with the appeals and then possibly consider a lawsuit. Um, if, if you're looking for someone to sue someone, you know, and of course that's kind of a, a, a spectator sport in America nowadays, but, uh, if you're looking for anyone that, that could file a lawsuit, it would probably be uh, Todd McNair, uh, most likely for a, a defamation of character or uh, you know something along those lines. And because uh, you know he was, it, it looks like painted as as the uh, you know scapegoat in all of this, and and it looks like it came down to his word versus a, a word of a convicted felon. And as a result, his you know coaching career is you know kind of damaged going forward unless he ends up you know getting cleared in this matter. Uh, so so if there's any talk of a lawsuit, it's probably going to be on Todd McNair's end. Um, and you know going forward for the university, I, I just not at this time at least uh, when you're talking about a lawsuit. Yeah, I mean I think that makes sense, and it, it's it's an interesting to note. We had to talk to a bunch of lawyers while we were doing this research, and one of the things you you figure out is. You know, there was a show cause penalty against Todd McNair. He's not able to recruit for one year. He wasn't fired, though. He wasn't, um, you know, mandated by the NCAA to, to no longer coach. And I think that's where the NCAA got in trouble before. Whenever they forced a coach to fire, to get fired, that's when the lawsuits started coming in. So it seemed in this case, even though they didn't believe Todd McNair, they didn't go so far as to say he should be fired. Uh, what do you think about that, Brian? Well, you know that I think that was a case where you know they've gotten in trouble, uh, and, and schools and the NCAA have opened themselves up to lawsuits that way. Like you were saying, um, I, I think Jim O'Brien probably the best recent you know issue where they uh, were looking into the basketball program. He got fired and he sued, and he he won several million dollars from uh, Ohio State, I believe it was, and. Um, you know, you've seen issues of coaches getting fired for a lot less. You know, Rick Neuheisel, I think, in Washington was uh, an example. I'm sure a lot of USC fans will bring up uh, after, you know, he was looked into it and, you know, ultimately convicted of, uh, you know, going through with a, you know, NCAA pool uh, for the NCAA tournament. So keeping him on staff, I think, is 
USC saying that, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to, you know, they might let his contract run out, which, you know, we, we've reported that, uh, you know, his contract runs out this year. So they, they could just let it expire and, and let it, you know, be waiting for that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the schools and the NCAA have gotten in trouble for firing coaches, and uh, that, that's where lawsuits and that's where money, money comes involved. All right. Uh, thank you for that one, JC. We're going to have, he has another recruiting question. We'll get that to Gerard uh, in the next segment. We'll talk a little recruiting in the next segment with Gerard. Uh, Mark wanted to know, as I read the report, all the records for both team and individuals for the games that Mayo and Bush participated in will not exist in the media guide. Is that accurate? So if so, a guy like Lindell White, did he not run for a thousand yards, et cetera, et cetera? Well, a guy like Lindell White, he's still going to have in the record books, yeah, you know, two thousand yards rushing or whatever it might be for a season. Um, Reggie Bush won't show up anywhere in the media guides or, or any of the official statistics that the university has. Um, you know, you look at what Matt Leiner did, you know, did with you know ninety nine passing touchdowns, I believe he had, which was a Pac ten record. You know, that's still going to stand. It, you know, they just won't have the victories. The, those victories will be vacated. Um, you won't see Reggie Bush's name anywhere in, you know, Pac-10, NCAA, USC records. You, you know, he he's the one that's going to get the yards taken away and the touchdowns taken away. So instead of being, you know, USC's all-time, all-purpose leader, you know, he, he's, he's not even going to be on the list. And, you know, that's an uh, important clarification from what I've read and what I've been told is that, yeah, Lindell White's rushing yards and touchdowns, that's still going to stand. It's just, you know, during the game that he rushed for it, he, you know, that game was not a win, even if it, the score ended up score ended up being 58 to 12 or whatever it might be. Gotcha. And then I, I, we talked about the list a little about this before you don't lose those games. The wins are just vacated. So like, I think USC fans really want to know about their winning streaks against Notre Dame or UCLA. I think that, you know, you turn a eight or nine game winning streak into a seven or eight game winning streak. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I I think the best example is is the Notre Dame streak, you know, dating back to 02. Instead of saying it's an eight-game streak, they'll say it's a seven-game streak, even though it might be over eight years, you know. Um, It's all to be worked out, and we'll see, you know, when Tim Tesla, the sports information director, actually sits down and, you know, has to go through all this. He has to submit a report to the NCAA as as part of the uh, committee's report and say this is what we took out this is what the record the accurate record is and uh i wouldn't be surprised if you know you know a lot of people say you know i still saw it with my own eyes i still saw reggie fly over the goal line you know against ucla as as they beat the bruins um you know they might you know there still will be people out there that says you know reggie bush is the all-time leading rusher but officially from the school uh you won't see that and uh, you know, once we get that, you know, if, if the SID department releases that, we, we will be able to accurately see the records. And so that should be something we could be seeing, you know, in the near future, actually. Yeah, I got asked on one of the radio interviews about the Orange Bowl. And, I'm, and like, do you think Oklahoma fans are going to be excited now that USC had to vacate that win or whatever? And I'm like, you know, you know I was at that game and you're walking down the sidelines. And in the third quarter, as the Oklahoma fans who were all fired up in the beginning of the game were filing out of the place in the third quarter you know i'm like i don't think they're going to feel any better about that game they didn't seem to feel too good about it that day yeah. i don't think anybody wins in a situation like that 
Well, and, and you're you're going to see players, and, and I think it was Aaron Rodgers on Twitter came out and said, "All right, Clay Matthews, where's my you know Pac-10 championship ring?" And uh, you know, just kind of joking with him. Well, uh, you're you're going to see more and more of that as as time goes on, saying, "Oh, you guys didn't beat us that year, so you know we're you know it, it's just it's it's to be worked out, I guess." But you know, the records are vacated; they're not you know subtracted from anything or anything like that, and and that's kind of the important thing to keep in mind. And, and the team records, from what I've been told, are still going to be there. It's just Reggie's are not. All right. Um, well, just, you mentioned Twitter. I just want to let people know. Brian's a big tweeter. I think, I don't know if, is that the right huge, word? Huge. Yeah. Brian D. Fisher. At Twitter. At Brian, at Brian D. Fisher. Yeah, on Twitter. So B-R-Y-A-N D. Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. You can follow him on Twitter. He does tweets all kinds of good USC stuff and other stuff as well. And you want to follow, we don't really have a Peristyle podcast Twitter page, but I have mine inside Troy.com. I mean, inside Troy, not.com uh, at inside Troy. So I do, you know, for Facebook and Twitter, I try to put a bunch of stuff up from that. And we put the podcast up on there as well. So you can follow us both there on Twitter. If you like to tweet and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Kevin had a question, Brian, and it's an interesting one. Uh, having to deal with the sanctions, a limited number of scholarships, I mean, you got to try to figure out some ways to move people around. Do you think Lane Kiffin would want to redshirt more players, not just freshmen, but non-freshmen, to preserve you know, for this season and preserve preserve their eligibility? So, if you got a guy like a DJ Shoemate, who is a, I believe, a junior, Patrick Hall, uh, Devon Flournoy, who's a sophomore, come in. They they all have redshirt years available. Would it be better to if they're not going to play much? keep an extra year of eligibility for them so they could play down the road. What do you think? See, I, I think that's uh, to be determined, but if I had to give an opinion on it, I wouldn't say they would change their redshirt policy much at all. Um, you know, there's the possibility, obviously, that we've talked about, that they will appeal and there will be a bowl game and there will be 25 incoming freshmen for this year um, if, if they choose to appeal those things. So uh, in the end, you know, maybe a guy that's kind of a borderline guy like a, a Devon Florinai who only gets, you know, he, he played last year, but he only got, you know, a couple of reps here and there. Maybe those type of guys will be registered a little bit more. But, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even know what, what Lane Kiffin's normal redshirting policy is, much less under these sanctions. So I think it's all to be decided, but you know, being USC, being getting, you know, knowing the caliber of athletes that they continue to get um, in their recruiting class sanctions or not, I, I wouldn't expect a whole lot of kids to, you know, just come in and saying, I'm going to redshirt. I just don't see that. All right. That, that makes sense. You know, Pete Carroll wasn't big on redshirting guys that um, we'll have to see what Lane Kiffin does because we didn't really get a feel for what his policy is going to be. He might have to adjust it, uh, but we really don't know at this point. One last thing. Um, Perry had a recruiting question, but it did kind of border on this scholarship stuff while we're talking about it. He says, so SC has to stay under 15 scholarships a year regardless. Does that mean if someone transfers out, um, they can't replace that? They don't get 16 the following year. That's correct, right? Yeah, it's it's only they're they're limited to fifteen incoming guys, and uh, there's it's called a counter, and in, in what the NCAA terms it as you know your initial count. And that's why they say initial grants and aids if you read the NCAA infractions report. Um, so essentially, they're, they're only limited to those you know fifteen people coming in. And this year, uh, with, with the appeals and the sanctions and whatnot, you know, like I said, we're, we're far. This is the you know one step and many steps to come. So you know when you're looking at scholarships, 
you can kind of keep that 15 figure in the back of your mind, but you, you got to be aware that that could get reduced. That could not come into effect until two years from now or three years from now. It could get wiped out altogether. So when you, when you look at the scholarship counts and all that, um, you know, just, just keep that 15 figure in the back of your mind because the USC could certainly uh, have a guy like Cody Kessler enroll early and that would count towards the 25 um, from, you know, this year's class, the 2010 class. Um, and in the end, yeah, it's, it's 75. That's, that's the big limit. But, you know, the way the sanctions are, it's 15 incoming people. All right, Brian, great job on the story. Great job on the podcast. It always is uh, always fun talking to you. And uh, we're looking to more to more on this story as the, the days go on from here. We certainly have more and uh, good being on the podcast again. All right. Thanks, Brian. Everyone else back in 30 seconds. We're going to talk to Gerard Martinez. What does this all mean for recruiting? listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. Hey, USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. Let's talk a little recruiting with uscfootball.com's recruiting analyst, Gerard Martinez. I guess he's been, he must have been taking the last week or so off, Gerard, since we've been doing this other kind of story. No, nothing on recruiting. Nothing on recruiting. Just uh, <laughs> Rising Stars Camp, two days of uh, one of the biggest camps nationally. Uh, for recruiting and for evaluation and for USC specifically, being able to see some of these guys that uh, they've targeted throughout the spring and even earlier than that. But, uh, yeah, it's a little different this year because we cannot cover the Rising Stars camp, which uh, indirectly has connection to the NCAA sanctions and uh, the probation and all this kind of stuff that uh, we've been working on with uh, another story here at uscfootball.com. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the you know, USC's kind of tightened down the ship a little bit. Compliance has come in. They're closing off those camps to the public. Once they're closed off to the public, they're closed off to the media as well. So we normally bring you, we wouldn't probably even have the podcast today. We'd have to delay it even another day because so much is going on at the Rising Stars camp. So hopefully that'll all get cleared up and next year we'll be able to cover these camps for you and get you all the good recruiting scoop from what's going on down at USC. I hope so. I mean, I'm, hey, I feel useless sitting around here uh, <laughs> talking about uh, uh, the, the the team beat and uh, what's going on with this story and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, hey, man, this is recruiting. This is not my area. This is not my area of expertise. Well, let's talk some recruiting then. The, the big the big uh, kind of side story that's been going on, is, and I think we got, I don't know if I, I can't count how many questions we got on this for the podcast. Again, podcast at uscfootball.com. If you want to ask some recruiting questions from Gerard, update on Sontrail Henderson. That's from Mark, and we had a whole bunch of other people send that. Pretty much the same question as well. What do, what do you think about Chantra? I think Chantra is not on campus yet. And <laughs> the majority of the 2010 incoming class is on campus. Uh, the exception really is uh, two players, from what I understand, Chantra Henderson being one, and Soma Vanuku, uh, six foot, 255-pound fullback slash linebacker from Eureka, California. Uh, Soma is uh, the cousin of Ray Maluga. 
And uh, so Soma has some issues that he's still working out with school in terms of taking some more classes. I believe he's taken some more summer school classes uh, up in Eureka. So he's not expected to be down uh, at USC until later. Uh, obviously, if he qualifies and he gets those classes taken care of, it could be one of those things that stretches into fall camp. We've seen that um, with various kids coming in over the summer and past years. But with Chantrell, not so much, I think, a great issue. Um, that's been bantered about. But the thing that people have to realize with Chantrell, he's going to Creighton-Durham, which is an excellent, excellent private high school. It's very good. He could be a 2.3 GPA-type student, and still with the college-level classes that they have there, he's probably going to be okay. This is not one of those schools that's you know, some small uh, public school in the city that has low funding, and you don't know what kind of classes the kids are taking. You don't know what kind of counseling they're getting. Creighton-Durham does a good job of getting kids out, getting them into college. So I don't think there's a ton of worry about that. He has graduated from Creighton-Durham. That's not an issue. So I think as long as he's graduated, I think that people are pretty confident academically he should be able to get in the USC. I think the bigger hesitation is probably with the sanctions. Obviously, we saw that coming into him actually signing his letter of intent. He committed to USC on signing day, and then he held off of actually signing his letter of intent until about March, about mid-March. So, and that was, had a lot to do with it. I mean, it really was more about what was going to happen with USC. They talked to me specifically about the bull ban and the TV ban. That was the two things worrying them. Now, USC obviously didn't get a TV ban. They could still play on TV uh, throughout the year, uh, but there is a two-year bull ban. Now, USC is going to obviously appeal that, and we know that they're kind of sounds like they're in the process of doing that right now, uh, but um, the bull ban is still a bull ban, and I think maybe there's a little bit of a feeling. Well, you know, USC said one thing. I don't think anybody at USC really anticipated the sanctions that they got. And not only anybody did. When the NCAA report came out, I think most people inside Heritage Hall, inside USC, were pretty shocked by it. Um, that was kind of the vibe that I got, at least. I think Chantrell Henderson kind of looks at that and feels like, well, you know, maybe they lied to me. I mean, they were saying this all along, that there's nothing really going to happen. It would maybe be a couple of scholarships, but it's not going to be this bull ban. And then the bull ban comes down. I think that's kind of maybe his hesitation because so much of this going into them, again, signing this letter of intent was what was going to happen with the NCAA and the investigation. So at this point, he's not on campus yet. There's been some talk that he is going to come down and visit USC, hang out on campus, and maybe just talk to the coaches again. The coaches did fly out to Minneapolis and met him in St. Paul uh, supposedly this week, according to reports locally there in Minnesota. So, you know, they're still recruiting him. I mean, I don't think they're flying out to Minnesota if it's a done deal that he's going to be a Trojan. I think that, you know, he's going to come out here. Um, is he going to actually enroll anytime soon? I have not gotten any kind of verification to this. Uh, there's a chance that he does come out here and takes what amounts to an unofficial visit um, just to kind of re- maybe rekindle that interest in the reasons why he felt like, you know, he committed to USC in the first place. So that's where everything stands with Chantrell Henderson right now. You did have an update with uh, one of the recruits on campus now, Markeith Ambles. He did get to talk to Chantrell. Was that a couple weeks ago, or what was that? That was uh, last week, I think. Uh, talked to Marquis Ambles. He was just coming out and um, really kind of packing and getting ready to come out to USC. And uh, ended up coming out to USC. I think last Saturday was a lot of the when a lot of the recruits um, moved into the dorms and whatnot. Um, so he, I think, a couple days before that, Marquis had talked to uh, Chantrell and got the vibe that Chantrell was still sticking with USC, that he wanted to, uh, 
you know, stay a Trojan, and they've talked about other schools. Um, maybe the interesting side angle, side story to the Chantrell Henderson deal is that the two other schools that he was involved with, Ohio State and Miami, both those schools, from what I'm told, are totally over their scholarship limits. Now, maybe that changed with some transfers and some things that have gone on off the field that you know, I'm not aware of because I don't follow those colleges specifically. But Miami was grossly <laughs> over their scholarship limit for the year. And Chantrell Henderson, unless he did go to uh, maybe a, uh, an academy or go to uh, some type of prep school uh, for the fall, he wouldn't be able to go to Miami and, and have a scholarship when, you know, they try to get Latoya Anderson. And from what I understand, Latoya Anderson ended up having to take a track scholarship in order to go to Miami. Um, so, and Ohio State, kind of a similar thing. They didn't have really any more scholarships offers to, to offer uh, at the end of the year when Chartrell was making his decision to where he was actually going to sign his letter of intent. He committed, and then he went on to March to actually before he signed his letter of intent, and that was kind of a significant thing because you had Ohio State and you had Miami, which had already signed the majority of their classes. So everybody was thinking, well, are these schools, do they have enough scholarships left? From what I understand, at the end of the year, they did not. So... That's another kind of part of this story. If, if Sean Trell didn't end up at USC, which actually has plenty of scholarships open, um, you know, where else does he end up? It seems like his two other choices there at the end of the year were really viable choices. All right. Well, thanks for the update. Thanks for the question, Mark, and everyone else that wanted to know about Henderson. Uh, we talked in the last segment a little bit about the uh, 15 scholarship limitation and being able to sign kids during the early signing period that could count for the 2010 class, so guys that would come in in this in this class, if USC sticks with the sanctions and they can only get 15 scholarships, uh, a guy like a Cody Kessler who would come in in the spring would actually count towards the 2010 uh, recruiting class numbers. And they wouldn't count of that 15 that's limited for the class of 2011, 2012, and 2013. Um, Perry wanted to know if there are any players uh, you think that would be willing to enroll in January. They'd be able to come in and play in spring ball. I think the list right now looks more like JC guys um, and USC's recruiting offensive line, and it looks like safety pretty hard at the junior college level. Uh, from what I gather, it's a pretty good linebacker class as well. Uh, I haven't really had a chance to really evaluate any of the linebackers, but uh, from what I understand, it's a deeper class of linebackers than it's been in past years, and USC was able to pick up uh, Glenn Stanley. Uh, from the junior college ranks last year, which was a big pickup for them. You know, being able to plug in a guy who's, you know, 6'2", 235 pounds, and be able to put him in, he can compete right away because physically he's a little more advanced coming from the JC level. Um, so that could be uh, another position they start to recruit harder. So at JC, there's always a lot more guys that are able to get in, uh, you know, at that December area and able to graduate early. Still difficult for USC in general to recruit JUCO players. They're going to, you know, they're very aggressive right now after JUCO players. There's a lot of guys that are talking like, eh, we might offer this guy, we might not. I think when it comes to early enrollees, you're really going to have to wait until after July, see what these kids do in summer school. Because a guy like Dylan Baxter, Dylan Baxter didn't even really have any idea that he wanted to enroll early until after summer school. He takes some summer school classes, kind of was like, wow, you know what, I only have to take a couple more classes in the fall semester to be able to get in and graduate early. So that kind of was a, a, a last-minute decision by him. Guys like Kyle Prater were already kind of advanced, and they knew going into the summer that, hey, I'm going to take a couple classes so I can get out early. So at this point, there's going to be some guys that pop up, but I don't really know of a ton of them. Cody Kessler is definitely one of them. But the thing you have to add, uh, 
you, you, and see, they got to stay under that 75 limit. So while, yeah, they can get more people in this specific class than the 15, which the NCAA currently is saying that they're, allow, they're only allowed to have assigned in the class, um, while they can get more than that 15, they also have to have people transfer out too. You know, so it has to be that balance that they can't just, you know, hey, he's an early enrollee, so let's sign him. They also have to have that out of, you know, not having 77 guys on the, on the, on the total roster. They have, to, they have to continue to be under that 75. So that's a little bit of a, a juggling act there. All right. Well, thanks for that question, Perry. Kevin actually had the, uh, the, almost the exact same question, so thanks for sending that in as well. Uh, David wanted to know, uh, scholarship limitations, how do you think it's going to change USC's recruiting approach? Like, would they only take one kicker? I mean, only take one quarterback. Don't take a kicker. And any recruits that you've talked to seem to be shying away from USC in the light of sanctions. Uh, to answer the first, uh, the, the last question first, no, not really. Um, I think that there's a little more wait and see. You know, what happens? Do they really appeal? Uh, do they take the bowl ban this year? Do they wait off it because of the appeal? Um, I, I think they're going to take the bowl ban this year regardless. Um, but in terms of how the whole thing plays out, is it really just this one year or has it become two years? Do they have, you know, an additional maybe scholarship offer boost if they go to appeal and they're able to get, you know, only five a year instead of the ten that they're being docked for three years? It's, it's really kind of a tough it's, – it's tough to, to, to understand how they get into it because it's a little more prolonged than people kind of realize. I think the issue with the scholarship offer specifically, that's something that starts to affect you later on after the three years, after you get that, you know, that 30, then you're starting to look at it and go, oh, okay, hmm, how do I get back those numbers that we lost when you can only sign 25 to a full class? Now, I say sign 25 to a full class. There are ways to gray shirt and do certain things uh, with early enrollees that will actually allow you to backfill a little bit. So you're, you're able to get maybe 28, 29. You can't, I believe, sign over 30 or 31 anymore. I think there's actually a rule now with the NCAA because what was happening in the Southeastern Conference is that you'd have a lot of guys that would sign and they would place them. They would oversign grossly 38 guys, 36 guys per class, and then a bunch of those guys would just go to JC, but they'd be signed with a particular school, so they'd have some loyalty to that school and just be placed at a junior college until they were able to enroll. So the NCAA wanted to get away from that. They, they made a rule. So you're, you're really, you don't have a lot of room for that. So if you're docked and all of a sudden you're down in that 60 scholarship range because you've lost 10 for three years, that's really when you get in that third year, fourth year, and now you're off of probation, or I should say not probation, but you're off of the sanctions in terms of the scholarship offers, that's when it really starts to you go, oh, man, you know, we don't have any more scholarship offer deductions, but shoot, we really need to sign 30 guys in this class or we need to sign more because we're so far off. So really, it's a long-term thing. I think the strategy really comes into play more when you start to get into that third year and you start to look and go, okay, next year we can sign a full class. How can we find ways to sign just even more than a full class? That's really where it becomes a big deal. USC this year, they're not going to be affected too much. I mean, they've only signed on an average about 18, 19 guys in a class for the past I don't know how many years. Pete Carroll and that staff never oversigned. They never came anywhere close to 25. Every year we'd look and go, you know, they could really sign 22, 23 guys, and they never did. It was always around that. <laughs> 
that you know eighteen nineteen range. So, um, so it's not really it's it's you know four off of what they normally get uh, on on a big year. You know that's not a big deal. So it's really going to be how that ten starts to affect them later down the line, and that's really where the strategy is going to come in. I mean USC at this point, if they only have fifteen scholarships offers, maybe sixteen, including Cody Kessler in this class, well they're halfway there already. So and they already have some guys that are leaning their way. They kind of know what the class is going to look like. So strategy-wise, the only thing that I think affects in the here and now is that you can't take more chances on guys. You can't look at a guy and go, you know, he's a good player. We'd like to have him. Maybe he's going to contribute but not be a guy who's going to be a star for us. If you come in and you're recruiting a guy and you don't think he's going to be a star for you right off the bat, you can't, you can't take that guy because that's 15. I mean, 15, all those guys have to be some impact players for you because, again, you're looking three years down the line. Right. All right. Uh, thank you for that question. And JC wanted to know, what are USC's chances of landing linebacker athlete James Wilder II? J- and I know uh, you love the chances great. question. Yeah. Not great. I wouldn't say great. Um, you know, it really depends. He's supposed to maybe come out to the Rising Stars camp. Um, from what I understand, he's not there uh, this uh, this week. I mean, maybe we'll, we'll hear he snuck in and, and did great things there uh, uh, later down the line. But at this point, it sounds like he's not made it in. He's going to end up taking an unofficial. He still wants to take an unofficial to USC. The good thing with USC in terms of their approach with James Wilder Jr. is that they're recruiting him as a running back, and he wants to play running back. And everybody looks at him and says, this guy is Keith Rivers. He is a five-star linebacker. He looks like a five-star linebacker. He's a little tall to be a five-star running back. You don't see a lot of guys that are that height, exception maybe Adrian Peterson, that end up being big-time running backs. So you know he's in that 6'2", 6'3", range, 220 pounds, and he runs pretty straight up. He's a good running back, don't get me wrong, but you know when you're talking about the difference between being one of the best in the country and the best in the country, you know definitely a linebacker his better position. Uh, but USC... They need a power back because they're going to lose Alan Bradford. The only guy they have that's in the stable uh, that still has some weight on him is Mark Tyler. Mark Tyler's obviously, you know, to call him a power back, I just think would be inaccurate. He's just not a power back. He's a combo back. He's probably got 220, 225 pounds on him right now, but he's got to stay healthy to be a guy that's going to be durable. So they don't have a big-time power back. They've got guys like Dylan Baxter. They've got D.J. Morgan. When he gets healthy, um, they're going to have guys, maybe Black Mumba plays running back at USC. Looks like he's going to end up in corner, but if you, you know, look versatility-wise, he can play running back. All those guys are speed guys. They need some guys that can come down and play downhill, play off tackle, run some people over, because really that's what Lane Kiffin likes to do. And, and that's going to be it's, – it's a big sell for the program because they run that pro offense and they'll play out of the I formation. You see so few of that anymore with college football teams going to the spread. All right. Thank you for that one, JC. Uh, two more, and then we'll be done. Ian, uh, we're talking about the two-quarterback thing. Um, he wanted to know kind of a scenario – you know, what if Cody Kessler ends up being the guy they want? Would they not recruit Wittick anymore? And then if something like that happened, you know, the, the recruits he's tied to, like the Black Mamba or Victor Blackwell, what would happen with them? They told Max Wittick from the jump they were going to recruit two quarterbacks. So it's not going to be a thing where they stop recruiting him because they like Kessler more. I think at this point USC's put their cards on the table. They want both those guys. Um, they feel maybe with uh, with maybe Jesse Scroggins coming in right after Barkley, there's a possibility Jesse Scroggins doesn't want to wait around anymore. Um, he could be a guy that ends up transferring. Uh, they feel that uh, in terms of depth, when you get two guys on campus, 
maybe once they get on campus and you see in practice Cody Kessler or Max Wittick really separating themselves, one of those guys transfers. So you need to have the depth, and they still want the depth, but they're recruiting two guys for this year. So I don't think it's going to be an issue of, you know, they just haven't figured out who they like more yet. I think they like them both, and they want them both. All right. And then last thing, Mike, who is VA Trojan 94 on the message boards, I find, find this an interesting question. Uh, with it, What are the chances that some kids end up walking on like a Greg Townsend Jr. or a Matt Barkley and give up their scholarships if their parents have the financial means to do so? And uh, the one example I want to give you, Gerard, before you even answer this, Little Romeo was on athletic scholarship at USC on the basketball team. And he had, he was featured on MTV cribs before himself, not his family. So what are the odds of something like that happening? So little Romeo's dad is master P correct. I believe so. I'm not, you know, down with the whole thing, but I, I believe that's who it is. Are you not down with the hip hop, Ryan? I'm, I, I try. <laughs> I did know he was on cribs though. Isn't that good? Yeah. Uh, so actually, it's a little too mainstream hip-hop for me to even be down with. Uh, but I would say that you're not going to see Les Barkley on Cribs anytime soon, nor Greg Townsend Sr. While I'm sure they're well off and they got good security with them, uh, you know, Greg Townsend Sr. played for the Oakland Raiders for a long time. Uh, he's got a great NFL pension. Uh, his son's going to Beverly Hills High School. Don't get the wrong impression. Beverly Hills High School is nice, but it's not that nice. So I would say no on both accounts of those two players. Uh, there may be other players on the roster somewhere that have some money stashed away from their parents that they could do it, but I don't think anybody has that kind of cash to be going to a private school like USC, which is I don't even know how much money a, a semester anymore. It's a lot of money, and I, I think – it's tough. It's it's tough to ask that. It has to be somebody that would volunteer to do it. Um, I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, T.J. McDonald, uh, his dad played in the NFL, uh, but I don't think uh, Tim Senior's parting away with uh, his thirty thousand uh, dollars every six uh, weeks either. So <laughs> I don't know. I would say it's probably the chances of that happening are, are slim and none. I, I think that uh, USC is going to have to be more creative with uh, finding scholarship offers. Yeah, and I did Google that while you were. Uh... Actually, Yahoo'd that, but uh, uh, while you were um, talking, and he is Masterpiece Son. So good job. Good catch on that one. But There you go. See? Gerard knows. He's down. Uh, all right. <laughs> Gerard, thanks very much for all the great recruiting information. And uh, this was our extended sanctions podcast. One day late. I do apologize. We did one day late because this story was – we were really working hard to get this story up. And uh, check it out on uscfootball.com. If you haven't yet, you want to read about Todd McNair and – some of the sanctions that were levied against USC and, and you know why that could some of them could be reversed. We'll have to see. There's a lot more developing in the story. But thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Pear Style Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.